You're listening to a message from the church at Rutledge. For more information about TCAR, please visit thechurchatrutledge.org. It's kind of a little rainy outside, but thankfully not a complete downpour. That's always, I always get really frustrated driving in the rain, not because I feel unsafe with my own driving, but unsafe with the rest of the drivers on the road. Uh, and I'm sure some of you guys can relate. Um, but the, I just want to introduce myself. If, if you're new here, if you're a guest, if today's your first day, uh, my name is David. I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, hey, Tony, how you doing? And uh, uh, Pastor Marty is on vacation, a much needed vacation this week. Uh, gave me the opportunity to do this. Uh, at the end of the service, we've got a, we'll have a little table out here set up, and we'll have just a little gift bags with some sweet smokers, little prizes and treats in there, and some information about our church. We just want to give that to you, um, and, and I want to be able just to in, in meet you personally and introduce myself. So if, if today's your first time, just feel free to come on back. Also, um, if you've noticed, the last few weeks we started on Easter, we had a new information card. And so, um, you know, during the offertory, like maybe you have you know, something going on, or, or maybe God's really working in your life, and we've got three little boxes here. Um, one of them says, I turn to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've lived, the next one says, I've lived far from Jesus and want to come back to Him today, and the third one says, I have questions about following Jesus. So maybe like, I don't know where all of you are, but maybe you're just in a place and you're just really confused, um, and, you, and you're really just wondering about things, and, and so uh, feel free, you can, can check this card. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you need some info on how to get more involved, how to begin serving, how to uh, maybe maybe you've never been baptized, maybe you've never followed in the commandment of Jesus to be baptized, um, and there's a place on that for you too. Um, so feel free to look at those later and um, fill those art, fill, fill those out. But uh, today we are, are doing a new um, sermon in our series, uh, "This I Know," and basically so far we've asked some really just kind of tough questions. We, we've asked some, some controversial things of, man, you know, I believe in this, but like, what's the deal with like God in the Old Testament? What's the deal with like, you know, you know, this nation being killed and, or, or, you know, this and that. And we really struggle. And if we're all honest, we do struggle with those things. I mean, I've struggled with those things, even as somebody who, I mean, I study the Bible a lot and study theology and all that stuff. And there are times where I still struggle with those things, but a lot of it just comes down to, do we really know God's character? And do we really understand the holiness of God? Do we understand the justice of God and the beauty of God? So the first thing that I want to do just very quickly is we're going to go to Bible college, okay, just for a moment. All right? All right, if you if all don't mind, we're going to do that for just for a moment. And basically, we're going to have Hermeneutics 101. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, basically this is a class on Bible interpretation. Because... In case y'all didn't know, there's a lot of people that have read the Bible and believe some pretty wild things. Am I right? Or am I right? Or am I right? right, right, right. Those are my, my Groundhog Day fans out there know what I just said. Um, but anyways, Hermeneutics 101. So basically, just two points that I want to focus on. This is really going to help us understand what we're talking about today. So when you read a passage of Scripture, what you have is you have the meaning... Okay, that's the first thing. What does the text mean? And a lot of times, and this is the danger about when we begin to have conversations with people about the Bible, which we need to. We need to have Bible studies with people. We need to talk. But there is a danger in it when we come to a group and we're like, well, what do you think this means? Okay, well, that's, yeah, yeah. All right, what do you think this, like, no, that's not, that's not how that works. Basically, 
the text, the Bible, whatever chapter we're in, it has one meaning, right? Somebody wrote it. So, for example, if you wrote a text message, or you don't write a text message, if you typed a text message to your dearly beloved, you know, obviously you're going to mean it something specific for that person, correct? Right? Tony Day is not going to pick up on, you know, somebody else's, you know, husband to their wife, what they're saying, right? It's not going to be for him. At least I hope not. That's going to be really weird. Um, You know, Tyler's text to Bailey is not going to be, you know, interpreted the same if it was to him. Hopefully not. Uh, But anyways, as I was saying, there's a meaning. And it all depends on various factors. Who wrote it? Uh, When were they writing it? Uh, what was the context? What was going on? So, for example, it's graduation season. Congrats to some of our graduates. I don't know if we have any in here. Um, but you see this everywhere. The verse, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. right? You see this verse everywhere. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plan to give you a hope and a future. Right? Like, that's a great verse. It's an encouraging verse. But sometimes we can really miss the meaning of that verse. Because actually, Jeremiah was writing that in the midst of Babylonian captivity. So God was telling His people, hey, you know, you're seeing all these people take over and they're, they're, they're capturing you and bringing you into slavery. Listen, my plan will prevail. The promise that I made to Abraham, the promise that I made in the garden, that I will bring an offspring who his heel will be bruised by the serpent, but he will crush its head, I'm still going to fulfill that. That's really what that verse means. It's not just saying, hey, you graduated, now you're going to have a great job, you're going to have a lot of money, you're going to have a great marriage. I think we all in here know that's not the case. My married folks know that's not the case. Um, so they have a meaning. Now the next thing it has is there are implications. Okay? Implications. And this is where we begin to read the text, read the scriptures, and we see the meaning of it, and we begin to draw implications from it. So for example... I don't know what type of translation y'all are using, um, but mine doesn't talk anywhere about iPhones. It doesn't talk about Android phones. It doesn't talk about MacBook computers. Um, It doesn't talk about those things, correct? Does anybody have translation that talks about that? Probably not. Okay, so how are we to think about those things if the Bible doesn't speak directly about them? Well, you read passages about wisdom. You read Scripture that's talking about loving the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And are we loving our phones more than our, our God? Sometimes our phones, that's our God. Like we care more about what we get from that telephone. So that's an implication. Or let's say, for, for example, um, beer is not mentioned in the Bible because it did not exist. It did not exist in biblical times. But they had wine. And what does it tell us about doing that? It says, do not be drunk with wine, Correct. Now, anybody could just come along without implications, just strict meaning. Well, he was just saying, you can't be drunk with wine, but you can be drunk with something else. You know? But I think any of us know well enough that the implications of that means, no, not to be drunk with that. We even know from implication it means not to be drunk with pride, because we don't even want to do that. So, that is the difference. And so, as we talk about today, we talk about why did God command child sacrifice, there are some implications that we really get from this text, this passage, the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, we've learned about this in Sunday school. And some great lessons are here. But if we're not careful, we will begin to just take the implications as what it means and miss the meaning of this passage. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask that you turn to Genesis chapter 22. Um, And so we're going to begin reading, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the first thing we see here is God is testing Abraham. I know we just mentioned graduation and nobody in here, and then we have summer vacation, so I know all my teachers and students in here don't want to talk about tests. Okay, but we're going to talk about tests just for a brief moment. All right, for me as a student, I was pretty good at tests. Now, I was bad as a student as a whole because I didn't, wasn't the best about homework and busy work. I just wasn't that good, but I I could walk into a class and listen to somebody lecture and talk to me and test on it. I could do that. Some people are different. Some people just learn different ways. But when we talk about God and we see what God is doing here, God tests us, doesn't He? Now, He doesn't test us waiting to really see because He doesn't know what we're going to do, does He? Because He's omnipotent, right? God knows all things. So God knows whether you're going to fail the test or whether you're going to pass the test. He knows. But why, so why then does He do it? Could it be for a deeper reason? A reason more important than just what we see on the surface. And I believe that's what it is, and I believe we'll see that in this passage. So God tests Abraham. Basically, when we are tested, and maybe... I wouldn't doubt if somebody in here is being tested today. You're in a season, and you're just really unsure about some decisions. You're really unsure about where you are with God, where you are with your church, where you are with your job your kids, your marriage. Maybe there's a test there. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe that's your test. A lot of times that that I've experienced these these tests, I've really begun to learn one thing. Really what God is saying in those times is, do you really trust me? Do you really trust me? Because when things are easy, when things are great and hunky-dory, hey, praises, hashtag blessed, right? Like, things are, it's just easy. It's easy to come to church happy. It's easy to, you know, be like, yeah, you know, read my daily verse this morning. It's easy just to do all those things. But when, when you're suffering, when things are hard, when go all the way back to what I preached on back in September, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. When you are in a Job place, and things are taken away from you, and you don't understand why, could it be that God is saying, do you really trust me? Genesis 17, God promised Isaac. And you remember the whole story with Abraham and his wife, and they laughed. I mean, the name Isaac literally means he laughs. So think about that, how God's even crushing their pride there for not trusting him. You're going to name your kid, he laughs. It's a great name. All right, so God promises Isaac and they laugh. But Isaac is the one whom God will establish an everlasting covenant with. And that's pointing, who's that pointing to? You might know. What's the church answer here? Jesus, as Tony Day said. All right. We know that that is where that points to. That's where King David points to. That's where Jeremiah and Isaiah point to. And as we see today, we'll see Abraham and Isaac point to him as well. But, but just to understand that, Abraham had this promise from God. You're 100 years old and I'm going to give you a child. And he is going to be the heir of many nations. And one day he'll be the heir of the offspring that God promised in the garden. The true heir. And so, he already had to see God do something crazy. He already had to go through this anxiety and worry and this just like, God's not going to do that. And yet he did. He fulfilled it. 
And so he comes along again and says, do you really trust me? You trusted me there after, after you saw me really do what I said I would do, but do you really trust me now that I'm going to ask you to take away your son? So God commands sacrifice. This is a very perplexing verse. Well, I thought God loves. I thought God's merciful. Well, He is. But God is also God. And one of the things about God is He has authority to do whatever He pleases. We have no authority. We are not autonomous. With our, you know, American dream and God gun and grits and all that, you know, we feel like, man, we can, we can make the decisions. I'm going to be my own man. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to raise my kids that way. I'm going to do this with my money, I'm going to tell my wife this, and she's going to do this. Like, it's all about what we want to do, what we think is best. Not even even thinking that so much of that thought is just shaped by our culture. We didn't come up with all that. It's shaped because of where we are. If you were born in India 300 years ago, you're going to be thinking about some different things. If you're born in Thailand today, you're going to be thinking about some different things. You're going to have different values. But God has authority. Psalms 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It is the Lord's. It is God's. Psalms tells us that the heavens declare whose glory? It's not ours. It's not the glory of our independence, is it? It's the glory of God. And Job chapter 1, as we mentioned earlier, just about his story and his suffering. After Job had lost his children, right after, immediately, after he lost his children and he lost his properties, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God has the authority to test. God has the authority to give. And He has the authority to take, take away from us. He has that authority. Also, something that's just really interesting I see just in this first verse, and I know we're being really exhaustive here, and we're going to get moving quickly here in just a second. But God doesn't really tell Abraham exactly where to go, does He? What does He say? He says, Go to the land of Moriah and offer, the, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So even just that whole process of going somewhere you don't even know is enough test in and of itself. That you're like, okay, I thought God wants me to do this. But it's very general, isn't it? Most of the time. It's just, we pray through, we read Scripture, we get counsel, but it's usually very general. We don't have this specific, hey, I want you to walk in to Walmart at 7.08 p.m. and I want you to go to that cash register and I want you to talk to that person. It's usually not like that, is it? But it's usually by you know some of these different things that happen that we begin to flesh out what God really wanted us to do all along. So, he, so he's got, Abraham has this uncertainty. He's like, I'm going to lose my son. You want me to sacrifice my son, my only son, the heir of all things, and you've made all this, these promises, but you, wanna, you want me to sacrifice him, and then I'm going to have to travel somewhere I don't even know? That's how Abraham is being tested here. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So the first thing I want us just to see here quickly is, so Abraham rose early in the morning. All right, if y'all don't know me that well, I'm usually the king of procrastination, okay? It's bad. And it's something that I really struggle with. And I know it sounds funny, but there are times where I really feel bad about it. 
Just like, because I wait to the last minute to do so many things. And I was this way in school too. You know, you'd wait till I can remember turning in papers online at literally 11.59. Okay? Seriously. A lot of people do that, and it works. I mean, it, you get it done eventually, I guess. But um, Abraham is not procrastinating, is he? Abraham has no hesitation. Where, when does he go? He goes early in the morning. He's getting up early. All right? And I don't think his wife is probably making him breakfast. She's probably still in the bed too. But he's getting up early. And he's going. So where's his hesitation? Where's his procrastination? Where, how about this? Here's one. Where is his, well, I don't know if that's really what God wants me to do. Let me just go talk to everybody else around me. Let me go talk to all my friends and see what they think. How many of us do that? We know God's testing us. We know God's calling us. But we want to get everybody else's opinion because we know what they're going to say. No, you're good. You don't need to do that. We know they are. We know they are. But he gets up early. He gathers two young men and gets his son Isaac. He cuts the wood. And he goes to the place where God tells him. He goes to where God has called him. So, so there's some implications even just from that is, what has God called you to do? Where has God called you to go? Because we're all supposed to be going, aren't we? So are we going? Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. So, first thing, they're traveling and it takes three days. After three days, God reveals the mountain that He has called him to go. The mountain upon which Isaac is to be sacrificed. And just a side note here, this happens to be the mountain that the temple is eventually built on. It's eventually that same place. That's an interesting thought there. Abraham gives Isaac the wood to be carried that will be used for the burnt offering. So they're going, they're traveling. And Isaac, think about this, and Isaac doesn't even realize what's going on, but he's carrying the wood that he's going to be laid upon, that will be on fire. Carrying that. And Abraham assures his young men. What did he say? He gave them some type of assurance. He said, we're going to go worship. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we'll worship and come again to you. So right there, if you ask me for the most part, Abraham is pretty much past the test here because he's already trusting. He's already leaning on a promise that he has over here. So God promises Isaac, I'm going to give you Isaac, and he's going to be the father of many nations, and the promised offspring that I promised Eve, that's, he's going to, is going to come through Isaac. Okay? And because of such a miracle happened here, he's over here ready to sacrifice his son, and tells other people, hey, we're coming back. So there was an infinite trust here in God, that regardless of how this situation was getting ready to turn out, that promise is going to happen. And he was leaning on it. We were in Hebrews for a long time. We're going to go back soon and finish that. Most of Hebrews talks about Abraham in every single chapter. And about his faith in this God who made a promise. Who made a covenant with him. Or Galatians. We are Galatians. There were tons of stuff about Abraham. About being children of Abraham. He trusted God's promise. I think for us today, one of the implications from that is is we can think about 
man, look what God did then. Man, 15 years ago, where I was, what I was doing, and how God rescued me. And God convicted me and brought me to Himself. And look what God has been able to do. So when you're, you're in that place now where you're just stressed. You're stressed about your kids. You're stressed about your finance, your grandkids. You've got all these just different things you're worried about. You, you know, I don't know. Whatever it is. If you could trust God then, you can trust God now. He will fulfill His promise. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So he asked his dad, where's the lamb? And what was Abraham's reply? The Lord will provide. There's an echo here I love. There's an echo of, of revelation of when the elders, they, they fall down and they cry and they say, Where, who can, who's worthy enough to open the scrolls? And they see the Lamb, don't they? Worthy is the Lamb to open the scrolls. Verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So Abraham, they, they got there. He, he's been trusting God this whole time. And it just, just really put yourself in his shoes. What's getting ready to happen? God had already reminded him earlier, take your only son and take the son that you love. Reminds him of all those things. Almost, to us, it can seem like a salt in the wound type deal. But just to really see, do you really love me, Abraham? Do you really, do you really trust me? Do you really trust in what I have told you and my promise? Do you really trust in my word? And so Abraham builds the altar. He binds Isaac. And he, there he is laying on the altar. And Abraham reaches out with his knife, ready to sacrifice his son. And as crazy as this, that sounds to us, in our 21st century mind, we have to remind ourselves what we talked about earlier, that God is God. And that only He is the only one that deserves anything. Uh, months ago, we talked about, I don't remember the passage, but we talked about in a sermon on Wednesday night, um, of one of the things that I think is really a game changer when you talk about suffering, is that you and I don't deserve not to suffer. Do you get that? Like, there are plenty of times and plenty of people that you wouldn't say, man, they just deserve that. You know, cancer, death, divorce. Like, there are a lot of times where things happen and we'd be like, man, they, I just, they just, they really don't deserve that. You know, why do good, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, you hear that all the time. And one pastor said that only happened once and he volunteered. Um, but we, we see those things and we wonder, you know, why is this happening? But we have to remind ourselves, nobody deserves not to. We're not deserve, we don't deserve a good life. We don't deserve happiness. We don't deserve financial security. We don't deserve marital joy. We don't deserve any of those things, do we? But so many times God is gracious enough to give them. But God is worthy and has the authority to remove them if He chooses. So Abraham, he's ready. He's ready to sacrifice his one and only son, the son whom he loves. Because of his infinite trust, he was, he was ready. Ready to go. And he knew that, you know, if, it, if this is what happens, 
God doesn't stop this. God's going to raise him from the dead. God's going to do something. Because his promise is sure. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So we see that Abraham has passed the test. God shows up, doesn't he? And God rescues and God redeems. And how does he redeem? Well, in the next verse, verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God made provision, didn't he? In the very next verse, it says this, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So we saw so many implications here, didn't we? About trusting God, about trusting in His promises, trusting in His word. And about even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of struggle, even when it feels like what's going on is going against everything that we think, this is how it's supposed to be. God shows He's faithful. He's faithful. So we see that. We see those implications. But what is really the meaning of this text? We really begin to see the true meaning here in that last two verses. That He was ready to kill His Son, and God provides a ram, doesn't He? He provides what? A substitute. All right, we're going to go back to Bible college for one second. This is a term, and this is one of the hinges by which all of the Scriptures turn on, okay? This is one of the most essential parts of the Gospel. And it is called penal substitutionary atonement, alright? Penal representing, you know, the penalty. Substitution, substitute, obviously. Alright, and atonement, a payment to be made, right? Because the wages of sin is death. We talked about that weeks ago. And so God is not unjust to take the life out of anybody. Because everybody has sinned, and the wages of sin is death, right? Okay. So we see here, penal substitutionary atonement. There, God provided a substitute. A substitute. Think about it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What happened after Adam and Eve sinned? What happened? Genesis three twenty one. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What happened there? God said, this day you shall surely die. And in Genesis chapter 3, from the get-go, God is providing substitutes. God substituted them. Now, we know they died spiritually. But they weren't going to die physically for a while longer. But even then, they're demanded a substitute. And God used animals and made and closed them with the substitute. What about the Passover? Exodus. What did they do? The lamb's blood on the doorpost, remember that? Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 through 12. For I passed through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So, everywhere we see God is demanding because it's required of us, because of what we have done. We committed treason. 
And we must be redeemed. There must be a price. God provided in Genesis chapter 3 for Adam and Eve a temporary substitute. We see a temporary substitute here for Isaac. We know one day Isaac's going to die. We see a, a temporary substitute there. We saw in Exodus. And then we even see it in Numbers. It talks about re- a redemption price. It says this in Numbers 18. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is, which is tw- twenty garaz. Okay, now don't get confused in all the, the um, economic terms in there. But the, the, basically what I'm trying to get us to understand here is this whole idea of substitution is all through the Scripture. It started from the beginning. It goes all the way through. All the way. Why? Why? So, what does this whole passage mean? Yeah, we see God tests Abraham. God tests us. We need to trust God. Abraham trusted God. The Lord provided. Yes, those are great and wonderful truths. And we need to remind ourselves of those things on a constant basis. We need to trust more. We need to believe more. There's an old hymn I remember singing in church growing up, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay, I agree wholeheartedly with that. But the main meaning of this text is not simply about trusting and the Lord providing. It's something deeper. More than pointing to just one thing, it's pointing to someone, isn't it? Who's it it pointing to? It's pointing to... To Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. So we've seen all throughout the Old Testament, and we just saw just three different books here, how God is demonstrating substitutionary atonement. God is demonstrating His provision to provide somebody who will die in your place. What is the gospel in four words? Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Colossians two thirteen through 14 And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all, forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, For the wages of sin is death, if you remember that. And he also said that God made him, Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5 says this, And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Psalms 14 says there is no one who seeks God, not even one. Genesis 6 says that man's intentions are only evil all the time. So when we were there, remember back, Let's think back before Christ rescued you from yourself, from your sin, and from the wrath of God. Remember that time, who you were, what you thought, what you wanted. You were dead. I was dead in my sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we were just doing what everybody else did. We were just following trends among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God so that no man may boast. So all throughout the Scriptures, we see substitution. So why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Yes, there was a test. There was a trial. Do you really trust me, Abraham? Do you really love me? And some of you in here, you're in a place like that too, and God's asking you, do you really trust me? Do you really trust me? Do you really love me? But what is the meaning? Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Really, I believe the question is not why he asked that. But I think the question we ought to ask is why did God sacrifice his? If we were dead in our trespasses and sins, if we were following the course of the world, if there was nothing good in us, and let me just, on a side note, let me go against this whole idea that, and I've heard this, that God saw who you would be and God saw what you could do, so therefore He saved you? No. God doesn't look at a future performance and say, alright, I'm going to save you now because I know what, you know what you can do over here. God saves us while we were still sinners. Ephesians 5 says that, but God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here we are not seeking God with nothing to offer, broken, ashamed, full of regret, full of her sin. And God gives up His Son for us. There's nobody to say, hey, stop. I'll provide a substitute, is there? God substitutes Himself where we are to be. On the cross, that sh- we should have been there. And what happened there? Do you get that on the cross, Jesus felt the weight of hell? What is hell? Abandonment by God, right? What did He say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Christ became an enemy towards God on the cross so that we would be a friend of God. That's how important this is. That's how crucial it is for us to understand the gospel. And that's how crucial it is that when we're studying and we're reading and we're reading the Old Testament, that we say, God, let me see Jesus here. Let me see the gospel here. Let me not be content just to see the surface level implications, which are hugely important. But let me see good news. And so we see it. More explicitly, let's look at a couple things very quickly. Abraham waited three days to sacrifice his son to see what God would do, didn't he? He waited three days, because that, that was the journey. Three days, and he knew what was to come. He waited three days to sacrifice his son to see what God would do. God waited three days after sacrificing his son to show the world what he would do. Why not just do it right then? Why not just show up right then? It is finished, remember? To Telestai, it is finished. Why not God just show up then? Why not He just come off the cross then? But God waited three days to show the world what He would do. 
right there. That's one point. We look at that, we read that passage, and we see, I mean, what is that talking about? Oh, I see. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Abraham laid the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac to carry. God laid the wood of the cross upon Jesus to carry. God proved, God not proved, God provided a substitute in the place of Isaac to be sacrificed. He made provision. Jesus became a substitute in our place to be sacrificed. That is the meaning to this. So why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? Because God was seeking to tell Abraham, to tell the Jewish people, and to tell us who have now been grafted into that, into the promise. Read Romans 11, talks all about it. To tell us something about himself. And to point us to Jesus. All of Scripture. 66 books. All about one person. One name. Jesus. That's why we use the Gospel Project for our kids' ministry. It's a, it's a very great curriculum we use for our kids here on Sunday mornings. And it explains and goes and helps them to see how every story, Abraham and Isaac, Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, all these things are not independent stories of, in and of themselves. They're not only stories about trusting and about faith, but they are stories that are connected to something so much bigger than what they knew. Remember what Jesus told the disciples? The prophets long to see what you see right now. They long to know what you know right now. Long for it. But it's all about Jesus. Remember in Hosea? What did, God, what did God ask Hosea to do there? He asked him to go marry a prostitute, didn't he? And then what did she do? She left him. After he treated her just so good and, you know, wined and dined, all that stuff. Okay? And what does he say? Hosea chapter 2 says this, But God spoke to Hosea and said, Go again. Tim Keller says this is the most important verse in all the Bible. Go again and love a wife of whoredom. Because why, now why did he do all that? If you read Hosea, you see it. God is telling the Jewish people, he's telling us something about himself. He's saying, this is what my love is like. I'm going to pursue you. You can run. You can run all you want. You can disobey all you want. You can worry all you want. You can fear all you want. But I'm coming for you. If you're mine, I will come after you. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son, says, but while he was a long way off, his father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. So today, some of you, you might be a long way off. You might be running. There may be something that God has called you to give up. There may be someone God has called you to give up. Maybe God has called you to move. Maybe He's calling you to a different job. Maybe... He's calling you to confess some sins to your spouse. I don't know what He's calling you, but I guarantee He's calling you something today. But I pray, and it's my hope that through this, through something as, as we just think about Abraham and Isaac, and, and we, just, we had that struggle of understanding that we would really see Jesus, and that we would really see the true and deep meaning here of what God is trying to tell us, of what He's trying to communicate to us about Himself. So Tyler's going to come up and we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to have a time of offering after, and if you're a guest, please don't feel any obligation to give. 
Um, remember, we do have those information cards. If maybe God just really work, is working in you this morning. Maybe, you know, you want to follow Jesus today. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been far from him and you really want to get back on track and you really want to, you know, just, you need help. Go here or talk to me after the service. Talk to Tyler, talk to a deacon. Talk, just talk to somebody. Because you've not been called to bear your burden alone. But we're supposed to do it together. So let me pray for us. Mighty God, I, I thank you for your grace towards us. I thank you, God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, I thank you that you were so able to provide. I thank you that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of stress and doubt and worry and anxiety, in the midst of health problems, in the midst of marital strife, in the midst of pain and loneliness, God, that you provide. But God, deeper than all those things, I pray today that we would see the ultimate provision. That we would see the one whom John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we see Jesus today. May we see His grace. May we see His love his gentleness. May we see His eagerness to spend time with us, to listen to us, to carry us, to hold us, to hug us and kiss us. God, while we were far from You, You ran to us, embraced us, and kissed us because of Christ, our substitute, our sacrificial Lamb. God, I pray that this church and I pray that these people, I pray that we would live every single day on mission. God, that we would tell the world that there has been a provision for you. God, that your love will love us no matter what if we have Christ. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would convict us of where we are, of our sin, of our rebellion. God, and I pray that you would call us home. May we come to the well. May we come and drink and be satisfied. And may we begin this new life. This new life walking side by side with you. God, may we suffer. But may we suffer with you. Be glorified in us. And we ask it in the name of the Lamb who is worthy to open the scrolls. In the Lamb of God who is worthy of our praise. Who is worthy of our obedience. And who is worthy of all our thoughts our desires, and our affections. We ask it in your name, King Jesus.